ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And joining me again this week, we have Chris Delaney, Industrial Relations Advisor for the Australian Security Industry Limited. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, John. Good to be here. So, Chris, today we are discussing the new subcontracting code of practice. Uh, and this is something that ASIAL has been championing. Um, obviously, subcontracting has been an interesting discussion within the security industry for quite some years now. We all know that subcontracting is a necessary part of the security industry, but it's the multi-tier subcontracting that's uh, caused us some issues in the past. Perhaps you can give us a little bit of background on what the new subcontracting code of practice is that ASIL's been championing and and the need for it. Why have they decided to develop this? Mm-hmm. Look, uh, there's, there are a number of questions in one there. Um, for many years, ASIL has been uh, encouraging regulators and legislators to have a look at this whole subcontracting area. Um, you talked about multi-level subcontracting. Um, we deal with that in the code as well. Uh, but probably uh, uh, as an important part of all of that multi-level uh, subcontracting, there are issues about subcontracting to individuals. So independent contractors, uh, there's legislation covering that. Um, and they seem to be the, the very vulnerable area. And we've talked to regulators, particularly in Victoria and Queensland, in the licensing areas. Uh, and we've talked to the Fair Work Ombudsman about that. And we don't seem to have made a lot of progress. And we're disappointed with that. So we decided to introduce our own subcontracting code of practice to ensure that our members uh, behave professionally, uh, that they understand their legal responsibilities in the industry and the legislative requirements uh, in an effort to eliminate sham subcontracting in our industry. And it's not just our industry, but ours is the one we're, we're most interested in. Uh, to protect vulnerable workers um, against exploitation and to improve business practices and delivery to customers. So we want the full uh, supply chain to be aware of this subcontracting code of practice, to to embrace it uh, and to only use uh, security providers in the protective services area who... Uh, adhere to this code of practice. So to be clear for those people who are listening to this, this code of practice is really only applicable to ASIAL members. They're the only people that ASIAL can enforce this against. It's not a a broad code of practice that's been introduced as law. No, no, it's not a broad code of practice introduced as law. Um, It certainly picks up on a lot of legal issues surrounding subcontracting. And we know we can't expect uh, people who are not members of ASIL, uh, we can't force them uh, to adhere to the code, but we would expect that the industry would embrace the code uh, and that any professional organisation using subcontractors would adhere to the code. And we would expect that customers who use security providers would demand that that their providers adhere to the code if using subcontractors. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what's in the code and what ASIL hopes to achieve by introducing this? Well, the code um, 
provides a significant amount of advice on the legislative requirements for subcontracting. Uh, it uh, it identifies what subcontracting is, uh, and I know that sounds a little bit sort of mundane, but you know a lot of people don't understand what subcontracting is. Uh, we define what a prime or head contractor is, what a subcontractor is, what multi-level subcontracting is. Uh, we talk about independent contractors in the code and the difference between independent contractors and employees. Uh, we also um, talk about sham subcontracting and what that is all about. We discuss the Independent Contractors Act and how it applies in that context. We look at labour hire licensing in Queensland and Victoria in particular. We talk about modern slavery yep. because sham subcontracting could fall into uh, that, uh, that, that area. And we provide a number of um, resources within the code that employers and uh, customers can use to assist them with auditing and understanding those those uh, aspects of subcontracting. So help me understand what ASIL defines as sham subcontracting. Sham subcontracting is when you use uh, an individual in particular to do work uh, that is really... Uh, uh, the work of an employee. So uh, it's misrepresenting the employment relationship as independent contractor arrangement when it's really an employee-employer arrangement. Uh, it's dismissing or threatening to dismiss a, a, an employee who doesn't want to be rehired as a subcontractor and wants to continue to be an employee. Um, and it's making knowing or false statements about the arrangement that, that they have. That's essentially what subcon uh, sham subcontracting is. So, a misrepresentation of the arrangement. Yeah, so really just trying to offload an employer's obligations to provide leave and loading and all those sorts of things by hiring someone back as a contractor. But it's also important for people to listening to this to understand that there are certain rules and regulations around contracting. And I know this isn't really the scope of what we're talking about. Perhaps you can provide some guidance here. Um, my understanding is that if I am contracting to a company and I'm getting 80% or more of my work from that company, then I'm not really a subcontractor. I am actually an employee. Look, that's a tax issue yep. uh, rather than an industrial relations issue. Right, okay. And that 80-20 rule is about uh, personal services tax. Right. You know, a, a, a real business pays around about 30% tax. Around yep. about it's it's been reduced recently, and I'm not prepared to say exactly what the number is because I can't remember it. Yep. But that's a personal services tax. Okay. Now, you can provide personal services, eighty uh, percent of your work from one percent of your uh, from one client, um, but you have to pay the higher rate of tax, the right. PAYG rate of tax. Okay. Now, so you're not a genuine business. Yeah. Now, in the terms of, in the context of security, 
a security employee, a security officer, let's call him that, who thinks he's an independent contractor because he's got an ABN. Yep. That only works for one particular client is an employee, not a contractor. Yep. He also might work for a dozen different clients and be deemed to be a casual employee for each of those clients rather than a contractor. Right. So a lot turns in that instance on what that that person is bringing to the arrangement. And we talk about multifactorial tests between independent contractor and employee, and those tests include things like the control, who's got the right to hire and fire, who tells you where to go and what to do, when to work, how to work, et cetera, et cetera, wear your uniform, integration tests. There's a whole range of multifactorial tests that come to this arrangement. Yep. And if, if you fail most of those those tests and they're in one of the um, appendices that we've got, one of the tools that we've got, if you fail one of those tests, you're an employee. And look, in many cases, independent contractors in the security industry providing protective services and providing it with their labour only, they are not independent contractors. They are employees. Okay. And we've got a lot of that, unfortunately, in our industry. But we should point out to people who are listening to this, this this isn't a gotcha exercise. No one's out trying to, you know, say, ha-ha, we've caught you doing the wrong thing or whatever it may be. I imagine this is all designed to try and help people better understand what their responsibilities, obligations and legal, uh, I suppose, exposure is around all of this contracting stuff. So if I'm running a, a security company, how do I, you know, how does ASIL help me better understand whether I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing? What does this code of practice do? Well, the tools that exist in the code of practice, first of all, the code of practice itself will tell you what the right thing is. And then the tools that exist in the code of practice will tell you how to work out whether the right thing is being done or not. Yep. So first of all, we might have the independent contractor versus employee tool, which allows you to go through a checklist and get a very good understanding of whether this arrangement is sham or okay. Yep. There are auditing processes, uh, tools in there that will allow a prime contractor, for instance, to ensure that whoever's subcontracting to them is doing the right thing by auditing them and determining whether or not they're paying the right wages, they've got the right mix of employees and uh, casuals and permanents and what have you, they're meeting their compliance requirements under the law. So we would expect that at least the medium-sized businesses and smaller businesses can use those tools and we would expect the bigger businesses who subcontract, and they all do, we would expect them to have at least a tool as good as ASIL's or better to ensure that compliance is occurring down the line. We have that big problem when you've got, you mentioned it earlier, the multi-level subcontracting, which we don't subscribe to, but we have that big problem where the prime contractor might be paying 
uh, a significant rate to the next level down contractor. And as it goes down the line, the guy at the end of the line is not getting paid the right rate of pay. Yep. So we want everybody in that line to be getting a, a reasonable rate in order to pay their employees the right rate of pay in accordance with the award. Yep. Or more if they can get it. But yep. Not and, less. And there are quite foreseeably instances within the industry, and I'm aware of a couple of them, where let's take the um, systems integration side of the industry because, you know, that's a, a big part of the industry where I'm installing alarm systems or cabling or whatever it may be. Um, and I start out my security installation business and I've got five guys working for me and I start getting phone calls from all sorts of people saying, hey, can you install for us? Can you install systems here? Can you install systems there? And all of a sudden I find that I've got one particular client that's just got so much work on that I and all of my staff are doing 80 or 90% of my work for that one client. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a sham arrangement. It just means that they need to make sure that they're doing things correctly. Is that the case? Oh, look, that's entirely different. That, that's not a personal services issue. Yeah. Um, and if you've got 90% of your work for one particular client, but you've got employees doing that work and that it is not an integral part of the work that the client does itself, you know, let's say it's a bank, a large bank, and it says, we want you to put in cameras right around the country. We want 5,000 cameras. We want access, egress stuff. And you've got a whole heap of work from that place. That's not sham contracting. Yeah. And this, uh, this subcontracting code of practice is focused on the protective services industry where the most you're supplying is labour not product, not materials, labour. Yep. And in that in that context of uh, of uh, integrated services, there's the the cost of labour is much higher. Uh, employers are providing, or the the contractor to the bank, for instance, is providing product as well as services as well as materials to do the work. That's a different sort of situation. In protective services, usually the individual providing the work, not the contractor, but the but the employee is providing labour only. Yep. Okay. And we so do we we do see that sometimes in that integrated services side of things where we have just uh, installation technicians being provided to an installation company, but again, you know, as long as it's all being done properly. So, when does yeah, this the tech, the tech usually yeah. brings with him maybe a vehicle, maybe some materials? Um, he's not working just for the one organisation. He he uh, holds himself out to work for a whole range of different people. The tech is a different, a completely different environment. Yeah. Okay. And usually, you know, by, by demand and supply, techs are not exploited. Uh, you know, they're getting 60 to 100,000 plus. Yeah. Uh, not like the security officer who might be getting 20 bucks an hour flat rate or cash in hand. And that's you know, the sort of thing that we want to stop. So I'm assuming the, the code of practice that ASIO's put in place is to try and deal with things like we saw during COVID with the hotel quarantine 
issues where we were getting people literally receiving text messages saying, hey, you want some work? Just bring your ABN and, uh, and we'll give you work. And it's like, well, that's not really what we're after. Look, you're absolutely right, John. Um, I can't comment on the hotel quarantine situation, um, but uh, telling somebody that they can only work with an ABN doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a, a, a proper contracting arrangement. Again, if they're only bringing their labour to it, if they're working uh, to the extent that you couldn't tell the difference between them and an employee, uh, the very strong uh, chance is that they are, that is a sham arrangement. And if the arrangement is designed to exploit the individual, to reduce the costs for the employer, superannuation, workers' comp, all of those other attendant costs that uh, a genuine employer has, if that arrangement is designed to do that, it is a sham arrangement. And we don't condone that at all. And hopefully uh, we will help employers understand, providers of security in the protective services area, that that is not a professional way to go about doing their business and it's not a lawful way about doing their business uh, and they should avoid it. Great. And so when does this code of practice come into, well, for lack of a better word, practice, when does it kick off? uh, Putting it out into the public domain amongst our members um, in the next couple of days. Uh, and the commencement date is the 1st of July 2021. We have uh, we will run a campaign right. where where uh, and, and you know this has taken a couple of years to develop. We've talked to regulators, we've talked to uh, to consumers in the industry, uh, customers. Uh, we've talked to our own membership, and we've built it based on all of their input. Uh, the campaign will include uh, talking to large um, users in the industry, uh, facilities management organisations, large customers. Um, we'll campaign regulators, the Fair Work Ombudsman, seen it, um, and uh, you know we'll, we'll talk to other regulators about it, um, and uh, we'll talk to our own members and introduce it over a period of time coming into effect on the 1st of July. Okay. And if I am an ASIO member and I am reported as not doing the right thing according to the Code of Practice, ASIO what has happens? A, uh, a, a complaints procedure, a compliance procedure. We are governed by the Registered Organisations Act Uh, and we are governed by our own um, um, constitution. Uh, We will follow up any complaint that is made um, through that particular procedure. And it won't be through me. Uh, I'm not the compliance manager, uh, but uh, it will be dealt with that way. If somebody is found to have breached the law, um, then the procedures that ASIL has in place through its disciplinary committee will be put into play. 
Right. If people want to find out more they about the Code the of Practice, website. where do they go? They can contact me if they want to, iraazil.com.au, um, or call me through Aziel and, uh, you know, it's the normal Aziel number. Um, or, uh, you know, pretty much on the website will be where all of that information is. Now, we will only be, we'll provide the Code of Practice to anybody who wants to see it, uh, but it'll only be the members who have access the corporate members who'll have access to the tools that go with it. Right. And for those people listening who aren't aware, the ASIAL website is www.asial.com.au and you should be able to find most of that information there. Chris, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast Thanks, once again. It's, a it's been great we like chatting. to get uh, the information out there for our members. Absolutely. And for those people looking for more podcasts like this one, including other discussions with Chris, you can go to uh, Blurberry, Spotify, Google, iTunes, uh, Android, Apple, uh, Google Play, all the great places that you find podcasts and uh, look out for all of the other podcasts and also the ASIAL website. If you go to the news section of the ASIAL website, you will find a list of podcasts there. I think we're up over sort of 40, 50 odd podcasts now. So make sure you check it out and download all the latest information. Thank you once again.